0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Minding the Gap, my attempt at amateur travel. Have noticed there's been a gap in the releases of inappropriate conversations for a little bit more than a month now. It's not that there hasn't been any content on the feed, I've released two episodes of Walk the Earth back to back during that span. But I knew that there would be a, a gap or a break of sorts for inappropriate conversations, and the reason was international travel. Now, this doesn't mean that there was no talk from an inappropriate conversations perspective during the last five or six weeks. But most of that can be found right now on another podcast, Greetings from Nowhere. You can find Greetings from Nowhere at visitnowhere.com. They're also available at iTunes and elsewhere under Greetings from Nowhere. And episodes 204 and 205 was my guest appearance on that show, the show Greetings from Nowhere, in this case titled, both of them, Inappropriate Conversations, um, hour and 45 minutes or so of conversation with Christina from that show during a period of time when Nicole was unavailable in her regular hosting duties. The other place that you can find greetings from nowhere is also where you find inappropriate conversations, on Stitcher at Stitcher.com. Stitcher's a great way to listen to shows on the go, and I thought it was going to be a place that I might listen to shows while traveling internationally, but I found that some of the consistency in finding good, consistent Wi-Fi made that a challenge because I was unwilling to use, and thankfully I was unwilling to use, roaming internationally to listen to shows on Stitcher. Uh, It's not Stitcher's fault that the cost of international roaming proved to be somewhat prohibitive. I put a post online earlier today to say that Inappropriate Conversations was coming back after a gap of sorts and that the show would be called Minding the Gap. And Scott from the Satyrsphere tweeted back to say that was hashtag filthy. And I can't agree with him more. One of the things that stood out to me when I was writing trains in England, and really writing trains commercially for the first time in my life, you think about it, I don't know that short of a zoo, or maybe as a very small child, I've spent too much time on trains. But one of the things that you hear often writing on trains around the United Kingdom is mind the gap mind the gap when stepping from the train onto the platform not at every single stop but certainly at stops where there might be any gap to speak of between the train and the and the platform and i just thought mind the gap sounded like it could be you know a potentially risqué film title of some sort i know that uh, you could accurately say that many teenage boys spend a lot of their time thinking about minding the gap. But in this sense, I do mean it literally, talking about the conversation and the the dialogue that you hear when traveling overseas. We took a trip, my wife and I, just the two of us, a trip that had been planned for quite some time, and centered around primarily trying to catch two soccer games, uh, football matches, while we were in England, but also, doing our best to take in as much of the country as possible by wrapping those two games around a couple of weeks. Actually, a couple of weeks plus a couple of days of travel. One of the things we did to get ready for that trip was to try to find video podcasts. Now, I don't spend a lot of time with video podcasts. I prefer to listen audio on my commute but in this case, I thought there might be some advantage in getting a look around, especially on the London piece. Because if you're only going to spend maybe three days or you know, four days total in London, then it's helpful to have a bit of a head start in terms of trying to do any sort of sightseeing. And I almost decided to call this particular Inappropriate Conversations Amateur Travel. Because the podcast that I think I found the most valuable at least from the video podcast perspective, was the Amateur Traveler podcast. They do both audio and video, I believe, but the short video ones were the most helpful. It gave me a sense of what to expect if we rode the London Eye, and it also showed uh, and spoke really highly of the Red Sightseeing bus tours. For us, we're not going to spend as much time in London as Nicole from Greetings from Nowhere is, even as I'm recording. Her trip is just beginning her and tj from greetings from nowhere and if you have a couple of weeks to spend then i think you have a variety of ways you might choose to get around you might just use the underground but to try to see the kind of sites we wanted to see and to cover enough territory we did do that hop and go bus and it proved to be pretty valuable a lot of pictures that we have came simply from being on that bus tour because again you're only in london for three days before you're getting ready to travel to other parts of the country, and one of those evenings is committed to a soccer match. So we really took advantage of that bus tour to the best of our ability. The other thing that really played to our advantage was the travel agency that we used. We weren't sure how to make the arrangements that we wanted to see the things we wanted to see while we were in England, Scotland, and Wales. And we weren't really sure whether... We could go through a traditional you know, travel agent route and even get tickets to the game. Our friends, or friends of mine who live in London and Manchester, had said, y- you're not going to be able to get tickets to these games more likely than not. In fact, at the time that we booked this trip with XL Sports, was the American and British travel agents, when we booked it, Manchester City was number two and Arsenal was number one in the English Premier League. So going to see a game at Arsenal between those two teams was in essence saying, I need you to get me a ticket to the top two teams in all of British soccer. And even trying to get a game later on in in one of the Manchester stadiums was, was going to be a trick to accomplish. But this travel agency not only took care of that, they took care of the rest of our travel, the rest of our journeys. And it all went very seamlessly. Every time we needed to be met by somebody, that person was there we were surprisingly on time every time, despite near the end of that trip being very tired. I can remember heading off on this vacation, wondering to myself what it might be like to go more than two weeks without being at the gym. Now, I'm not you know, an intense workout guy, but I do try to walk on a regular basis and shoot some hoops from time to time. And I thought, well, am I going to be... Essentially sedentary during this time, and and really have to get back into the groove of regular exercise. And boy, I could not have been more wrong. Um, walking around museums and castles and and soccer stadiums, you know, there's a great deal of exercise. And even if you're primarily riding, whether on buses or trains or subways, you're still walking to and from. And there's more than a number of stairs. I'll, I'll get to stairs here in just a minute. But a couple of things I wanted to do was sort of talk about. What did the trip look like? Where did we go? How did we mark a path to chart our course? Because there really are a couple of good ways to capitalize on a trip to England. If you're making that flight into London Heathrow, which is probably the most common way for American travelers to do it. One is the way, you know, my friends from Greetings from Nowhere are doing it. Spend most of your time in London. There's more than enough in London to do for a couple of weeks. And the other way is to cover as much of the country as you possibly can as if you're only going to be there once, and that's the end of it. You see, this particular Inappropriate Conversations show is going to be a nostalgia show. It's just that instead of waiting a couple of decades to look back on what just occurred a few weeks ago, I'm covering it immediately, because I'm already having nostalgic feelings about a trip that, you know, really, when you think about it from a vacation perspective... It's just completed. We are not literally just back, but figuratively, we are just back from a trip. We started off in London, and you land, uh, you take off in in America in the middle of the day, you land there the next day, five hours ahead, or because of daylight savings time in this case, four hours ahead, and you get there bright and early in the morning. It's somewhere between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. when you're heading off toward the hotel, and we were overhearing other people who were from America and making an international trip. And what were their techniques? And the people who were younger than we were, maybe not in college, but not long out of college, were talking that their strategy was to just power through, you know, get, get to where they were going to stay, drop off their bags and just head out into the city and keep going until they just couldn't take another step. Maybe go to bed 12 hours later around 730 or 8 at night and then sleep it off. We took a slightly different approach, but we weren't sure we were going to be able to execute it because it all depended upon whether or not the hotel was going to have a room for us. If we were going to have to leave bags at sort of a porter stand and wait a few hours to get into a hotel room, then we would have had to have done that other approach and, and head straight out and try to stay awake as long as possible. As it turned out, we were able to get into a room pretty quickly. And once we you know sorted out a few things how to deal with the chain, the differences in electricity, how to make sure that there were places to plug in different appliances, whether it be charging phones, which is the number one priority for me, or finding a way to get other things uh, plugged in so they could be useful for us, uh, finding a hairdryer, uh, figuring out how the electric razor was going to work later that night or the next morning. And then we quickly took a nap. And slept for almost three hours, just long enough to try to get some of the travel off of us. And then, knowing that we were still tired, got up and did the same thing that these 20-somethings were talking about. Went out there, got on the go, got something to eat, just took advantage of the city, because it was a beautiful day. You you think about it, in fact, in all the travels, except for maybe a, a day and a half in Scotland, the weather was pretty close to perfect. It's not that we didn't see rain on maybe one other occasion during a 15-plus day stand, but you're going to a soccer match, and if you watch uh, soccer on TV, you watch the English Premier League, it's not at all unusual to see fans sitting in just a torrent of rainfall. And we did get rain on the way to one of the games, but we were in a car being driven, and pretty much by the time you got to the stadium, the rain was a drizzle at best, and by the time the game started, it was gone. So we really didn't catch what I would describe as any as any real bad weather. And the first time we got a kind of a cold rain on us in Scotland, it was the first of the castles we visited. And I thought to myself, in some ways, this is probably kind of appropriate. It feels like medieval castle weather. So the geography of the trip. We started in London. Then we took the train to Scotland. The first train ride I've ever been on. I'll talk about trains more in just a moment. Then from Scotland, after a couple of days there we went down to Leeds where we set up a base of operation for a few days. And the interesting thing about the stay in Leeds is it feels like the city that I needed to spend more time in of all the places we were at. It felt like the one that I spent the least local time in because Leeds is less than an hour away by train from York. So we did a day trip to York. We also took a trip to Manchester from Leeds an hour in the other direction because that was that weekend soccer game. And although we, weren't ready to move to Manchester yet, we did actually had a driver drive us back and forth to Manchester to see a game in Manchester City's stadium. And from there, we relocated a couple of days later to Manchester, did a stadium tour, wandered around the city a bit, and from there we took a train to what I might describe as the West Country, a part of England that is much more rural, sitting on the border between England and Wales. And we did take advantage during that time to spend time in Wales, particularly in the city of Cardiff, by the bay, and did the Doctor Who experience while we were there. This was essentially the last major stay in our trip before we hopped a train back to London, had one day in town, barely enough time to do anything. We tried to do some museums during that time, exhausted, though we were, because bright and early the next morning, that last morning, we were on a plane heading back, And the travel heading back was much more, it was just much longer and felt more challenging. Partly because you're not flying with the anticipation of what's to come. You're flying kind of with the fatigue and satisfaction of what has happened. But essentially, that was the trip. There was a moment in the trip early when we had drawn an an even further leg. That in addition to hanging around in the Hereford area, we were going to go even further south toward Bournemouth maybe catch Stonehenge or something along the way, but be able to see the ocean from there and catch a soccer match on a Tuesday night. So I mean, there might have been a third game, depending on how we'd done it. And I think that this sports uh, travel agency could have made that happen just as well. But they also sort of encouraged us, based a little bit on some budget concerns, but more on time concerns, not, not to make that leg unless we really felt strongly about it. And I'm glad we made that decision because, really, the big thing about this trip for me that was important was meeting friends that we met online. And in these cities, uh, London, Scotland, Leeds, Manchester, Hereford, there were people that we knew. There really weren't any people that I personally knew, at least not that I was aware of, living in Bournemouth. So that would have been really a 100% tourist stop. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, we didn't see our friends in London while we were in London. And although I, I may have actually passed by a friend of mine, unknowingly, when we were in Glasgow, we didn't meet in Glasgow. Most of the meetings happened in Leeds, and I'll, I'll get back to that in just a minute. Because it ties into one of the themes of inappropriate conversations, and that is a, an understanding of possible world theory. You see, once you've made a decision about a trip that it's going to follow a certain itinerary, it's going to have a certain path to it. And you've stopped to seriously consider, actually had penned a paper about an alternative route, another way of going, that alternate route that you didn't take, that other path, well, possible world theory, at least in literature, kicks in there. And there's another whole story of this trip built around the idea of what if we'd gone the other route instead. There's a place in this story where if I tell it right, I'll stop and dwell on a real key moment in that decision. But it wasn't just the, the larger, broader, where are we traveling to theory of possible world. There also were some where even just even in the moment that we were in, how do we get to Sterling Castle? Do we take a cab ride to the train station and a train ride to another train station and a cab ride from there? Or do we simply pay a driver to take us wherever we're going that afternoon. That's a decision where there's some implications from the perspective of possible world theory, or even just the question of when you get together with a large group of friends, and I use the word friends seriously, here, but friends that you don't, that you've never seen in person before with a couple of exceptions. Do you try to maximize that time by being in a place where you can talk or do you well and truly go out clubbing? What kind of presence is the right kind of presence? And, If you grant that there's no wrong answer, which way did we decide to go? That is, in essence, the question. And it's guided by only one rule that I feel like we had. A couple of rules we had. First, from a budget perspective, we told ourselves that if you've made a decision to go to England and to visit multiple cities and not to drive, there's going to be certain transportation costs associated with that, and you have to live with it. It's... Simply a given in the math of the trip that if you don't want to drive, if you don't want to try to adapt to the other side of the road and all that other sort of stuff, or if really you just want to take in as many of the sites as you can and therefore you don't want to try to mix taking in the scenery with being a responsible driver, well, there's going to be costs to that. And it's probably going to require a variety of approaches to travel, again, train, bus, car, so forth, and a lot of walking. But the other rule is one that I learned from my brother, who I would describe as being much more close to a professional traveler than an amateur traveler. He certainly has done more international travel than I have. And he had a, I don't know if it's a rule in his life, but when I heard him mention it, I adopted it as a rule in mine. And that's essentially, there is no advantage to having a point of view about local or political events when you're in somebody else's place. Now, I do not follow this rule, If somebody else's place is the state of Texas or Oklahoma or Michigan or, you know, somewhere else, America's America. But traveling overseas, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have any pointed personal opinion about their history or their politics. And therefore, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have, you know, too much, to put too much at stake on anything that might otherwise truly be local. So one of the things I was trying to manage was not getting my hopes up too high about, who would or who would not be able to come see us while we, while we were there. We had an early decision, in fact, to make in terms of how publicly do you communicate what your itinerary is on a trip through another country, because just posting by day what locations you're going to be in draws a lot of attention, and in my opinion, too much attention, to where you're not, uh, in this case, home. It calls attention that you're not going to be around at least as far as your home goes. The one thing that I did find consistently, and I I don't know whether this should have surprised me or not, but it it did somewhat, because I think when you hear people speak about their own country or their own state, there tends to be, at least on a national stage, a a very public stage, a certain sense of self-deprecation. We all know that our governments are... Very dysfunctional, I would describe the government in the United States of America as borderline corrupt because of the way money influences the political process and because of the nature of the two party system and I've you know never pulled any punches in my criticism toward the attitudes of things local, whether it be my local church or my hometown or what have you. And I hear that internationally as well. Most people feel like the places they're at are inherently not as interesting as the places that they would like to visit. The grass is always greener, for example. But what I found when we were visiting, talking not just to friends, but also to strangers, a lot of people who were extremely proud of their local area. I wasn't asking people to to defend anything. I wasn't making any sort of an attack. But people were very quick to say how wonderful it was that we were there because we were going to get to experience as tourists something that they were very genuinely proud of. And without exception, on this trip, I think I would have to say that I agree with them. The things that they thought were spectacular or that a tourist would find spectacular, I did indeed find spectacular. There was, of course, the first challenge of overcoming the mundane. You check into a hotel. You're American. You've got appliances and devices that plug into American AC power sockets. For us, we had a couple of breathing machines, CPAP machines, And this is not just an issue in hotels that we encountered throughout England. It was an issue that we found truly every hotel we've been in. One of the things I know is that when my wife and I are traveling together and we both have machines that need to be plugged into a bedside table or a bedside locale, it's always a bit of a question mark when we check in as to whether or not there's actually first are there going to be two end tables or at least a chair you could pull over as a makeshift end table. And once you get past that, is there going to be power? is there going to be an electrical option close enough to the side of the bed? And what we found consistently, with only one exception in our travels in England, was that's not the case. We, we were needing to leverage extension cords and power strips and things of that nature just to be able to get two machines to plug in, because although you might have one electrical outlet close to the bed, you might not, in fact. But we certainly weren't finding two in most places, not in Hilton's, Millennium's, Radisson's. It was really only in the Country Inn, where we had good power outlets close to both sides of the bed, and convenient places to put those CPAP machines. So it took a little while in hotels to figure out how we were going to manage electricity. Of course, the other aspect of that is that we're living in a modern era, and if you've taken a journey, whether it's be uh, six hours by train or just a couple hours by train, probably one of the first things you're going to need to do when you check in is, is figure out how you're going to charge various devices. My wife traveled with an iPad mini and an iPhone. I traveled with an iPhone and a Zune. And so it was necessary to figure out how to keep those things charged up. When, again, they're plugging in with American sockets, and we only had a certain number of adapters that we brought with us to you know do the electricity conversion. The other thing that you find that's interesting is with the, you know, of course, not in the hotels, but in restaurants, the toilets always seem to be downstairs. No matter where we were, no matter what we were doing, if you were in a restaurant, if you were in a pub, with very few exceptions, the restrooms were going to be on a different level, sometimes upstairs, but usually downstairs. And by the end, it got to be fairly comic. Now, luckily, the pub that we spent the most time in, there was one six plus maybe almost seven hour stay in a single pub with a large group of people and luckily that was one of the few occasions besides maybe a friday's restaurant where the restrooms were on the same floor as the rest of as the rest of the uh the building and so it always became you know kind of a joke kind of a bit of an adventure in fact i i took some humor from toilets in general and a little bit of concern i will say that i'm wondering just wondering as as a neutral observer paying attention to what's going on around me and I'm quite sure this isn't just true in England I'm sure it's true all around the world if the use of hand dryers as opposed to paper towels has created a side consequence and an economic consequence of sorts that we haven't fully taken into account as a world because probably 50% of the time and I'm not even exaggerating 50% of the time when I was in restrooms I was seeing men choose not to wash their hands at all because they had doubts about the effectiveness or the speed or just the qualities of hand dryers. In most cases, there wasn't both a hand dryer and a paper towel choice to be made. It was one or the other. And with only one instance that I can remember, the hand dryers were winning out. So from an environmental perspective, it's probably a good thing. But the problem is that a lot of these hand dryers were terribly ineffective. When I would see a Dyson blade machine, I would take that as a good sign that this trip to the restroom wasn't going to take too much additional time away from whatever else we were doing because that and the uh, accelerator are a couple of the machines that work really fast, but some of the others work incredibly slowly, very ineffectively. And uh, it's even worse on trains. Those are you would you wouldn't expect them to be able to put something really high end inside the like the train equivalent of an airplane bathroom but when you see almost one in every two people going in to use the restroom not washing their hands on the way out presumably because they'd rather not hassle with a hand dryer you wonder if somebody could come along years from now and identify a relationship between certain communicable diseases spiking upward and the decision to replace paper towels with hand dryers on such a large scale. The thought crossed my mind anyway, and it most likely crossed my mind when I was spending one, two, or even three minutes trying to get my hands dry underneath some of the more ineffective hand dryers that were in some of these facilities. Having said that, the facilities did provide me one of the bigger laughs of the trip. As I mentioned, we'd never been on a train for this kind of travel before, And the first trip that we took, after uh, the plane ride, of course, was a long journey, six hours by train, from London to Glasgow. Now, the other thing I'd never done before, to my knowledge, was travel first class. We'd never done first class air travel, for sure, that I I know. And so we, we got into the train, it was first class, and that was good because it meant that we had a reservation, but it also meant that we didn't have to second guess or question anything when it came to the use of beverage service or food service or whatnot we had not gotten up early enough that day to do breakfast at the hotel so we were scrambling at the train station trying to decide could we grab something is there something we need to eat there not really realizing that in first class there would be food we didn't want to take the chance that on a six-hour train ride there might not be anything but it turns out that we got no shortage of food on the trip and at one point i went to use the restroom on the train When you lift up the lid, the restroom, at least on this particular train car, said this. Please don't flush. Big red letters. Please don't flush. Nappies, sanitary towels, paper towels, gum, old photos, unpaid bills, junk mail, your ex's sweater, hopes, dreams, or goldfish down this toilet. Now, I would say that that's a good example of making it fun. And on many occasions during this trip, Either the transportation services or the people that we were working with from the travel agency or simply locals found a way to make it fun. And I really wasn't expecting a six-hour train ride to be fun. I was expecting that to be one of the more painful parts of the trip. But when you go, at least on this particular route from London to Glasgow, you see so much scenery. There is so much to look at you travel across a, a pretty good variety of terrains that, frankly, I truly lost track of time just looking out the window. The one thing I knew right up front, and it didn't, it didn't take me long to catch on to it, was that train travel was going to be too close to auto travel for me to read a book. I had a couple of books that I'd taken with me. If only for the long air travel and the time spent in airports... But I also, for the first train ride, brought them with me on the train, thinking, well, you know, you never know. Maybe I'll be able to read on a six-hour train ride. But no, the, the rail, the wheels on rails, too close to wheels on ground, and I didn't want to take any chance on getting any sort of mild travel nausea. There was a lot to do. When we got into Glasgow, we immediately checked in, hopped a cab, and went to the Kelvin Grove Museum. Because there were two things I wanted to accomplish right away. One was seeing the Salvador Dali section and a particular crucifixion painting that was there, and also to visit the Brewdog pub that was right across the street. I wasn't sure whether I was the only person in the world who seemed to be somewhat equally interested in microbreweries in the United Kingdom, Brewdog in particular, and soccer, but we later found when taking the car ride to Manchester from our guide on that particular part of the trip, that we were not unusual at all, that there was a somewhat you know, predictable flow of Americans coming overseas for that exact reason, to see those two things, brew dog and Soccer. While I was there, we enjoyed some very interesting BrewDog beers. How to Disappear Completely is probably the one that I would most like to have another bottle of, as soon as I can get it, which maybe never, you never know. And outside the realm of BrewDog, the most interesting thing to me, surprisingly to me, were ciders. I'm not an apple cider guy. doesn't really matter what the ABV content is. Uh, I can drink an apple cider, especially if it's, you know, the equivalent of a beer in terms of the alcohol content, but it's not my favorite thing. But we discovered a cider company from Sweden, two of them in fact, where they really did have a product that I genuinely enjoyed. In fact, probably from a food and beverage perspective, the thing that I missed the most about being in England are these um, ciders from Sweden which were readily available in bars and in restaurants and, and even on occasion in convenience stores one of them was Kopparberg and their pear cider in particular the other one is Ricordelig and theirs was a passion fruit cider it's actually a passion fruit pear combination but passion fruit was the flavor that you know made that one distinctive and They're just not available in the United States at this time, aside from a few pubs in the southern part of Manhattan, in in the New York area. So not readily available, I guess, would be the way I would put that. And no sooner had we landed to come back from this trip than BrewDog announced that they were going to be soon releasing an IPA, Brewed with Passion Fruit. And ever since our trip to Hawaii a couple of years ago, both my wife and I have had a great deal of... Increase in our esteem for passion fruit, just as a flavor, especially with mixed drinks. And I'm very interested in what an IPA with passion fruit would taste like. And I fear that unless they choose to bottle it and make it available for purchase internationally, that my timing was just a little bit wrong to be able to enjoy that. The Pollyanna, Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast. podcast. So it's like someone saying "I love you" to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of podsafe pop and rock music. You can find the show at PollyannaCowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, Simply syndicated.com. Peace and love. I want to talk a little bit about music on the trip, and I want to do so before I get to the different drummer, who this week is going to be really all about music, and music from a distinctly British perspective. But before I go there, I think I want to talk just a little bit about a piece of lyric that was running through my mind through a big chunk of the trip. Now, part of this may tie back to my brother's notion of of try not to be a touristy tourist. Don't be the kind of person who insinuates yourself into local affairs. But part of it is that there is a certain amount of anxiety that can come I've mentioned before, and I don't know why I did it on the podcast or just online at uh, the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations or on Twitter, where I can be found at IC underscore Greg, that I'm kind of on that line right between introvert and extrovert. It depends on where I take that Myers-Briggs testing and whether that first letter is an I, I or an E. It really depends. And one of the things that was kind of running through the back of my head, unprovoked, I don't think I'd listen to the song at least not recently, was a just a slice of the lyrics from the pulp song Common People, where Jarvis talks about everybody hates a tourist, especially one who thinks it's all such a laugh. It's hard to wipe the smile off your face sometimes as a tourist. And I suppose that people in England are used to, you know, smiling Americans, I, yeah, hopefully, because... There was just no way in some situations to remove the smile from my face, but I was a little bit self-conscious at times to make sure that no one was perceiving that I was finding humor at their expense, that I wasn't the kind of tourist who thinks everything is such a laugh. So I've got pulp running through my head, but the band that we had the hardest time getting away from or the remnants of a band would be take that when we were in Glasgow uh, one of the nights, it was a little bit hard to find a cab, a little bit hard to find a reservation at a restaurant because of Gary Barlow being in town. Now, I had no idea who Gary Barlow is. The only member of Take That that I think I knew my name was Robbie Williams, and not even 100% sure I'm getting that right. Take That was never my boy band. Um, in fact, I don't think I have a boy band, to be honest. But when we ended up, being in Glasgow the night that Gary Barlow was in concert, and then a night later being in Leeds, the night that he was going to be in concert in Leeds. And, you know, we actually had somebody jokingly ask us if we were actually following the Barlow tour, which, of course, couldn't have been further from the truth. We definitely weren't following the Barlow tour. But, no, for me, from a musical perspective, the one thing this trip didn't have that I was, you know, it was a long shot to hope that it would was a reunion concert by maybe my second favorite British band, Deaf School. I'll get to my favorite British band when I talk about the different drummer, because my leader of my favorite British band has already been a different drummer, and I haven't done anything really on the show too much with Deaf School. I might have mentioned them in a Record Store Day episode uh, a couple of years ago, but really, that's the band that I was listening to on headphones. More often than not, if I was actually singling out a group rather than shuffling, which is what I normally do with my sounds. And they're from Liverpool. And Liverpool is one city we just didn't draw in. Our trip didn't take time for that journey. It only would have been one more hour from Manchester to have tried to have done some sightseeing there. But we were going to be there in the middle of the week in, in Manchester, like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday at the most, not in a position where we were going to be able to catch a game, even if we wanted to. And we also, I was aware of the fact, just from being on Twitter and following members of Deaf School on Twitter, that there was no reunion concert or anything like that planned. And yet, in some ways, memories of the band were still following me around, even when I was in London. One of the last train stations we were in, in London, was South Kensington. We were there because we were moving from museum to museum. And it was on that journey from the British Museum to the Victoria and Albert Museum that we passed through the South Kensington Station, and my ear was caught by something very unusual. In the London Underground, we'd seen musicians and even singers before, busking, for want of a better word, saxophone players too. But this time, we turned a corner, and we were heading from the actual uh, level above the train platforms at South Kensington, but still underground in a, a long sidewalk that they were calling the subway. It wasn't the subway in a New York City sense where they were, where you were still catching trains. It was basically a walkway to where you could get off at various stairways up to the street level where different museums were. And there, instead of a saxophone or a guitar, somebody was playing a didgeridoo. Now that's an instrument that has a very unique sound and a unique resonance and it reverberated all the way through the stone walls and, and the ground. And long before you got to the place where you could actually see the musical instrument, you could hear it coming. This ties out to Deaf School, interestingly, because on the plane, and uh, for a while on a train, I was reading a book by Paul DeNoyer called Deaf School, The Nonstop Pop Art Punk Rock Party, The History of the Band, Deaf School. And the passage that I got to, right at the end of our trip, was what happened after the third album and after the record label deal went away. And the band sort of split up and went their own separate ways. I came across this paragraph from saxophone player Ian Ritchie talking about what he did after the band. Page 206 says, For a while he turned to busking, quote, I'd go down to South Kensington Tube Station with a flute or a soprano saxophone, and the Americans going to the V&A Museum down that tunnel thought this was culture. Particularly if I had some music up, which I was learning to read at the time. So, I did okay out of that. And being in that area, in the evenings, there used to be lots of restaurants that had live acts, so I would sit in, and they would feed me. So, deaf school. Looking back at maybe 1979, 1980... And that tying into the things that I was experiencing now in 2014. Same place, different time. everybody hates the especially when I mm-hmm. think it's all such a lie. I the I suppose I should stop stalling and answer the question. What was the best part of this trip? For me, the best part of this trip was kind of a no-brainer. It was seeing face-to-face 26 people that I had only known virtually before. There were two people that I'd actually met face-to-face because they had made a trip where they bounced all over America. And we we encountered them on the Toronto piece of that, where there was a simply syndicated meetup for the podcasts associated with simply syndicated.com and Jonathan and his friend Robert Jonathan's part of the greatest events in sporting history podcast so we all got together really right at the start of his trip and right at the start of our experience on that uh, that night of partying in Toronto with fellow podcasters and Jonathan we were able to provide some yeah, minor hospitality. We had a car in Toronto. We, we gave yeah, a ride from one place to place, and we certainly tried to spend time together, make sure that their trip got off to a great start, did some things to help them secure tickets for buses for other parts of their journey, yeah, between New York and Boston and Washington, D.C., where they'd made a decision to travel by bus, and they'd found a really good deal, but the company wouldn't let them actually purchase the tickets internationally. They needed a an American website and american credit card all that so there's a couple things we did and the very first thing that happened when we got to leeds was that jonathan and his friend robert uh, in their mind returning the favor but actually were just paying me a, a, a favor independently truthfully of being able to spend some more time with them and we'd shot a couple of facebook messages back and forth saying hey if we're going to get together on this particular thursday night what do we want to do do we want to go grab a bite to eat and i i told him i'd To my knowledge, I'd never had curry before. If I'd had it, it was unmemorable, which seems unlikely. And I'd always usually hesitated about doing curry because I don't have the world's strongest stomach. And I I don't want, I certainly would be very wary about doing something that would create, you know, stomach distress for me and then perhaps interrupt events we'd planned on our trip because I needed to, you know, I had a restroom problem. He assured me he could take me to a place where the curry was well made and, Good and and that he would be able to guide us through getting things which were appropriately mild, and you know I mentioned the Leeds was my favorite stop along the way, and that uh, we started off you know in a bang. You know, we visited a bar that was older than the United States of America, and we had some curry, and um yeah, you got me off, and I liked it enough that we we did it two or three more times along the way, but really the big day for me was Saturday. We spent. Friday, the day in between in York. Saw one Simply Syndicated podcaster while we were there. As I mentioned, while we were in Glasgow a couple of days before that, we'd actually been in the museum at the same time that Marianne was there, but wouldn't have known her to have seen her, and may have seen her and not realized. It didn't matter, because on Saturday night, Marianne and 19 or 20 other people from all over England made their way to Leeds. Friends from London said it was probably easier for them to find us where we would be that Saturday night in Leeds than it would be for us in London and them in London, different parts of the city, to try to find each other on any given Saturday night or Sunday night. And I don't know to what extent that's true. My sense of the city of London is that, yes, it'd be a needle in a haystack. There were crowds everywhere. The way we did this Leeds encounter was that Simply Syndicated, once or twice a year, we'll gather together and meet friends and listeners in a bar downtown in the city center area. We went there and met with, you know, we're probably the seventh and eighth people in the group to get there. By the time we were done, there was more than 20. And there's just something about putting faces to voices, um, faces to names in some cases. But the other thing about it is this Simply Syndicated family of people has been interacting pretty closely with one another online for you know a lot of years. And over that span, there's been family pictures, uh, videos of past meetups, other things such that I really felt like I instantly recognized almost everybody. And in some cases, it was an odd feeling of trying to disconnect the idea that this was in some ways really a first meeting. And there were a couple of people that we thought might not be able to make the trip. And, you know, the one thing I'd done by drawing a circular route through the United Kingdom was that I'd left out, you know, things in the middle. So cities like Birmingham and Nottingham and and Coventry not included in in our visits. And some people who were afraid that they were not going to be able to make the meetup, I don't know what they had to do. I don't know what sort of gymnastics they had to perform with their personal schedule to get there. But they did. There were people who ripped up their weekend plans to be in Leeds that night. There are people who traveled from as far away as the south coast or even the southwestern coast of England to be there. I talked about the six-hour train trip that we took from London to Glasgow. And some people, with when you measure the train and car and combination, had traveled just as far or farther. That's obviously going to be the best part of any trip. And the funny thing was, at one point during that six-plus-hour stay in the bar, in a place where we were in a crowded public house but able to speak with each other, it's also the place where the restroom was unusually on the same floor as everything else, at one point, going up to the bar to get something to drink or maybe to order food, the lyrics to this song, Running Through My Head, Everybody Hates a Tourist, Especially One Who Thinks It's All Such a Laugh, and The Chip Stains Grease Washes Out in the bath. I'm hearing that song playing overhead in the in the bar. The music wasn't loud enough to drown out the sounds of voices. So when we were sitting and I was speaking with people and trying to spend as much time with as many people as I could, I wasn't hearing it. But when I was waiting for service, I could hear it. And I thought, well, we've really come full circle, haven't we? There were another handful of people that we met along the way when we went to Hereford later, and one of the people who came to the meetup from Manchester to Leeds we spent a little time with again in Manchester, um, sat down for a quick drink and talked about the city and and got a sense of what we might or might not want to do with what turned out to be such a short trip or a short stay in Manchester. The whole experience made me think of the difference between the way we used to do networking and the way we do networking today. If you look at the concept of networking from a business perspective, it's all about that face-to-face contact, or at the very least, what you might consider to be um, telephone contact, something where it's tangibly real in terms of seeing people or hearing people. But I'm not sure that's at all how networking functions today. When you look at things like Facebook and Twitter or LinkedIn, as far as that goes, from a business professional perspective, many of us have networking type business relationships with people that we haven't seen or that we very, very rarely see. And to me, it raises a question of depth versus breadth. I saw this week a quote from an article by Darmesh Shah, founder and chief technical officer at HubSpot, who said this in an article I think that I picked up through LinkedIn. I'm not sure. Talks about... The differences in people today and people who are um, successfully, in this, in this case, successfully networking. He says this, They believe that the depth of their network is more important than the breadth. The downside of the ease of social media is that building a network can become a numbers game. Few people need numbers. Every person needs real connections. People they can help, people they can trust, People whom they care about and who care about them. Forget amassing a huge network. Reach out to the people whom you really want to be part of your professional life for a long time. Quoting Shaw in this particular business-related article, but it dawned on me that that business-related article tied pretty nicely in to what I was experiencing. I was with a group of people that, even though in most cases I was seeing them for the first time, I was with a group of people that I cared very deeply about, and in a lot of cases, it was pretty obvious that they cared pretty deeply about me too. Now, <clears throat> you can make a four, five, six-hour trip to from one city to another in a country, and say, "Well, you know, what's the big deal there?" Uh, people who you know go from one side of Pennsylvania to the other side of Pennsylvania experience that all the time. But when when you go from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, you may be traversing the entire length of Pennsylvania, but it's not like you're going almost halfway or more across the entire country. And most Americans would make a trip like that by flying, especially if they were really, truly going halfway across a country the size of the United States. But this was an unusually high count of participants in a simply syndicated meetup. It wasn't, you know, five times as big, but it was at least maybe twice as big or almost twice as big And I can't help but to think that a lot of people were there either on one level to voyeuristically see the (laughs) American, But on the other hand, I really do believe it was truly to see me. And I think my wife probably got the experience of realizing that, yeah, when Greg has said all this time that these aren't truly strangers anymore, that he's got a connection with these people. That connection didn't become real on a Saturday night in Leeds in early April. It already was real. It was just, I don't know, maybe for the sake of my life, it was validated. Previously on Starbase 66. I saw another news report where it started off with, we were promised flying cars, where are flying cars? And, you know, it was amusing for a little while, and now I'm just really sick of it. Yeah, most people got it wrong. They thought that the future we were heading towards was going to be one like Star Trek, where energy was free and plentiful and readily available. However, our technology went a different route, and now we have computers far more powerful than anything that, that NASA put on a spaceship sitting in our pockets taking phone calls. Instead of being an energy revolution, it was an information revolution, and a miniaturization revolution. And, you know, the fact that we can do this podcast now, talking, you know, all across the countries, that's what the future we're living in now. We're not getting f-ing flying cars. Give it up. <laughs> Listen to Star Wars 66, the international Star Trek and genre fiction podcast on simplysyndicated.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. one day we'll make another trip like this or in some ways similar to this to england and if we do it should include liverpool and it should include some of the more remote parts of scotland we really spent most of our time in scotland in uh, Stirling castle in edinburgh and staying in glasgow there are parts of the country that are beautiful and much more remote that we didn't see and i did say that if that trip to liverpool included a soccer match that'd be all the better If it included a Deaf School reunion concert, well then for me, that would be just about perfect. But Deaf School's not my favorite British band. My favorite British band is probably my favorite band in the entire world, The Fall. But I'm not the only person who has those type of warm feelings toward Mark E. Smith and the various lineups over the years of his band, The Fall. Perhaps the biggest fan of all is our different drummer this week, John Peel. Thanks very much, Matt. Now, uh, imagine if you would that it's December 1993, you're at the Roadhouse Manchester, and yonder stand the fall. There is a connection, though, because Peel Sessions are really perhaps the most famous particular piece of, though I guess what I would call um, unplugged recordings or. Almost, well, they're almost bootlegs, I guess is the way they are. And Deaf School had their share of Peel Sessions as well. In basically nine-month intervals from 1976 to the beginning of 1978, Deaf School recorded three different Peel Sessions, roughly one after or around the release of each one of their three Warner Brothers albums. Uh, but the Fall recorded many more, more than 30. I'll get to that in just a minute. First, I'm going to introduce John Peel the same way I introduced our other recent different drummer, a person from Great Britain with a much more interesting name than the, well, the DJ name that we know him by. John Robert Parker Ravenscroft, OBE. The OBE meaning the Order of British Empire, or the most excellent order of the British Empire, which is the most junior and populous order of chivalry in the British and other Commonwealth honors systems. So, John Peel, a person of distinction if, you know, by name alone, But realistically, most of us know him not as John Ravenscroft. We know him as John Peel. And he might be the most important DJ that ever lived. I think that runs the risk of hyperbole. Might get me in trouble with some Americans who have a different perspective about the history of rock radio in America. But he is certainly, without question, the most important DJ of my lifetime. Quoting Wikipedia, Peel was one of the first broadcasters to play psychedelic rock and progressive rock records on British radio. And he is widely acknowledged for promoting artists working in various genres, including pop, reggae, indie, both indie pop and indie rock, alternative rock, punk, hardcore, breakcore, grindcore, death metal, British hip-hop, electronica, and dance. Peel sessions were notable, uh, because they usually were a pretty quick and tidy affair. Four songs recorded by an artist or band live in BBC Studios and it often provided the first major national coverage for those bands. Peel was passionate not just about putting the bands that he loved on the air, including bands that other people would have been aware of, too. He was passionate about putting bands that no one had heard before on the air. At BBC's website, bbc.co.uk, there's a Radio 1 page with a John Peel biography, and the one that interests me the most, the page on this website that interests me the most, is the Sessions Home dealing with the Peel Sessions as recording, and of course many of these released uh, on either vinyl or cassette back in the day, some still available on CD. Here's what the BBC says about it. Peel Sessions are the stuff of legend. They broke all the rules and engaged the listener with rough and ready mixes of some of the world's most weird, wonderful, and wired bands. There was a mythology to Peel Sessions. Musicians went into the studio to record their three or four tracks, only to emerge a few hours later blinking and dazed, having had a hell of a racket that would go down in history as the making of the band. The Peel Sessions began when John realized that he had to play more by the rules than he was used to at Pirate Radio when he joined the BBC in 1967. John's show had to air a large amount of non-recorded music. That was the rule. This meant that he was only allowed a certain amount of needle time, referring to stylus on vinyl. That time allocated to playing records on air was limited due to Musicians' Union's rules. The choice was either to have more idle banter or to get bands to play a live session. And you can guess what he chose to do. Deciding which artist to book for Peel Sessions was an organic process, Peel would have a brief chat with his producer, John Walters, usually about the artists that took their their fancy that week. Here's a quote from Peel: There are those who believe that there is in place some system. The meetings were held. The charts were poured over. John and I would list the bands who had not received a session for a spell, eliminating those whose work no longer pleased us, or rarely whose newfound celebrity status would mean that their agents, management, and record companies would come together in a holy union to frustrate our attempts at rebooking. We'd also add to the list the names of artists we had heard and liked on demo tape or record, or seen or liked in performance. John was repeatedly asked what his favorite session was, and he could never choose, because there were so many Peel sessions recorded. Among the artists who got invited back many times, The Fall, 32 sessions. Ivor Cutler. 20 sessions. The Wedding Present, 16 sessions. And of course, there are famous sessions by the likes of Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Marley, The Smiths, Nirvana, and Pulp. For me, though, my favorite is The Fall. Early on in this different drummer segment, I played a clip from one of the John Peel sessions, which is actually a live recording of The Fall. Pretty much a a long Peel session in the sense that it was kind of an entire concert. You can find this recording to download for yourself if you'd like. It's at a tribute site called theperfumedgarden.blogspot.co.uk. Hopefully it's still up and available. These things kind of come and go in in the sense of their web availability. But there certainly is no better way, in my mind, to think through the legacy and to honor the contribution that John Peel has made to music in general, to rock and alternative music in particular than simply to listen. What an appropriate way to describe a different drummer. Hi, this is Will Tristramer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but, you know, we try our best. It seems I'm following a long trip and a long gap in releases of inappropriate conversation shows with a long podcast. Maybe that makes sense, the word long appearing so many times along the way. One of the things that I learned pretty quickly when we made the next phase of our trip, leaving the bigger cities of Leeds and Manchester and going down to the West Country and places like Hereford and Garway and Abercrombie, was that taxis cost a little bit more in the country than they do in the city. Part of that is because you can use trains to get yourself pretty close to where you want to go and only use the cab where you really need to to get yourself through a particularly tricky area of traffic where maybe the pedestrian travel isn't as good as it could be. When we first got to London, we took a cab ride that only cost three pounds. We were that close to the BrewDog pub, we just weren't 100% sure how to get there from here. But in the country, you're often often traveling many miles. We visited places like Garway and Ross-on-Wye, and it's, you know, 10-15 miles, I would guess, between them, or at least it felt like it was that kind of distance between them. So you got to you know, much more significant expense when it comes to taxing, but I'd still made a commitment myself that I was not interested in driving. The other thing was connectivity. When you're in the major cities, it's unusual to get to a pub or a restaurant where there's no Wi-Fi option whatsoever. Uh, from a geographical area perspective, the United Kingdom's not that big, and when you're not in the remoter parts of Scotland or Wales, you're pretty well plugged in. But when we got out to Hereford and Garway, the first thing we noticed—well, the first thing I noticed—was I was running out of power, and I didn't have enough juice to actually um, go ahead and use my international roaming if I wanted to. So, we got to the to the inn where we were staying at the Garway Moon, and we plugged into the wall, charged up the phone a little bit. But once I got that done. I realized that I wasn't getting a Wi-Fi connection yet, that we'd arrived at the inn sooner than perhaps we were expected. And we were sitting at that time in a place where we weren't ideally situated to tap into the Wi-Fi or the Wi-Fi wasn't really on yet. So I thought, well, that's no big deal. I'll just, I will pay whatever cost to switch my roaming and contact our friends and find out where they are and where we're going to meet and what we're going to do. And suddenly I realized that I was in a part of the country that was remote enough that my issue wasn't just that I didn't have power. I now didn't have a tower, or so it seemed. So when you can't get connected because your phone's not strong enough, when you get your phone charged up, you can't get connected because you're not getting a signal anywhere and that there's no Wi-Fi available, extremely frustrated. talked about possible world theory near the beginning of this inappropriate conversation show and that was the one moment where i actually stopped and thought well we've been really so blessed on this entire trip maybe only one meal had been disappointing one meal in a london restaurant that i wouldn't go to again but all the other you know instances the food was good either in the hotels or in the pubs no issues and we successfully met most of the people that well the people we had any hope of meeting even Jenny, who had thought maybe the last minute she wasn't going to be able to join us, found a way to make it work. And I left very little bit, only very little on the table. So few opportunities had not been more than I could have imagined. And so here I was in this country end where the plan was to spend a lot of time with a friend who worked nearby and another friend who frequently traveled through the area on his work travels. And now I wasn't going to be able to get in touch with them at all. The idea of leveraging a private Facebook group and messaging people in that group so that your itinerary is not visible to everybody on Facebook. And therefore you could talk about, hey, we're here already, where are you guys would work as long as you had a Wi-Fi connection, as long as you were okay using your international roaming. But now it was for the first time in a situation where I seemed to be cut off completely, and the thought running through my head was this is the same night. That we otherwise, on the first draft of this trip, might be in Bournemouth, checking into a hotel, gearing up, and getting ready to go watch the Cherries play against Queen's Park Rangers that night. By the way, Bournemouth won that game, too. My soccer experiences were really good. We saw a draw. The away game was a draw. We saw another victory. And so our soccer experiences were very good. But now, for the first time, I was asking myself, am I in the wrong place. Would I have been less a fish out of water? Because what were we going to do for a couple of days in the country if we couldn't at any point during that trip meet with our friends? There's a lot to do in a city like Leeds or Manchester if you never run into your friends. On the walk back from our meeting our friend in Manchester, just kind of taking the scenic route back to the hotel, we found ourselves on Canal Street... And were greeted warmly, effusively, by a set of strangers who could tell that we were tourists and were delighted that we were Americans. And one of the other things I regret about the trip, one of the possible world moments was we had reservations that night to eat in the steakhouse that was part of this hotel. But we could have just as easily scrapped those reservations and spent a bigger chunk of the night hanging out in the sort of canal district with this group of people. There's more to their story than we knew, because we knew that we were kind of in in the gay part of Manchester. And in this case, that certainly meant happy and friendly, too. But we chose to keep that dinner reservation and eat some Argentine beef and so forth and so on. So I'm pretty pleased that either one of the possible worlds there in Manchester would have been a great story. But for a while there, for just a few moments in Garway, I was worried that we maybe, for the first time on this trip, made the wrong turn, and made the wrong turn late enough in the trip that if it, if it had really been a mistake to have planned it that way, we wouldn't have had time to recover. That's not the way it played out. Deciding somewhat desperately that we might get better phone reception on the move than sitting in the, in the inn, we took a walk down to where we had heard the school was, figuring that if anybody around had some sort of... I wasn't going to tap into their Wi-Fi, but I figured maybe they were in a place where the cell towers were good enough that you'd hope that a school would have some sort of Internet access, if only through cabling, some sort of Internet access. And sure enough, by the time we got close enough to the school, I did get enough of a signal. And the messages I was getting was that our friends were already in a coffee shop waiting for us, that they, had, one of them had been there for more than an hour, and the other one was only going to be able to stay there for about an hour or more, In a narrow window if we wanted to get together that night at all how were we going to make that work well we had to walk back to the end make a phone call to the only taxi driver we could find was the taxi driver who dropped us off so he'd made like a 30 minute trip from the train station to the end he had to come back on that 30 minute trip take us and then take us on another 15 20 minute trip in the other direction it was the single most expensive cab ride of my life I would say that, but we did make it to the coffee shop just in time. We're able to meet both of our friends and in one case, the kids too. And we able to talk long enough and plan well enough to make plans. Not just for what we wanted to do that night. We got the advice we needed from the locals on where to eat and where to look, but also what to do the next night. It turned out to be one of my favorite parts of the entire trip coming right at the moment where we thought, Wow. Was this a wrong turn? I think I was so out of sorts that I was still looking lost even after we'd figured out that everything was going to work perfectly. We were walking from that coffee shop to a restaurant in this small city of Ross. Uh, the restaurant recommended to us by our friend, uh, who's a chef, so I figured, hey, if, if he's going to recommend a restaurant, I'm going to do everything in my power to take that advice. We were stopped by a maybe a teenager on the street, an older teenager who asked my wife if we were Australian. Clearly, on some level, I was so lost that I didn't even look like I was from the continent I was from, much less the city that I was in. And you wonder about accents. I mean, it was obvious that from our accents we weren't local. But I guess sometimes things are hard to place. And, you know, are you Australian? I will say this, it was the first time we got that question. Generally speaking, though, and that was a wonderful part of the trip. Met our friend, met his kids, met his wife for the first time face-to-face, had a great dinner. That's where we found the Passion Fruit Cider. Wow, was that late in the trip that we found the Passion Fruit Cider. I'm quite sure that's true. There were only you know, maybe a handful of days, well, not even a handful of days left before we were back in the United States. Interesting. But we found people to be genuinely very friendly and helpful. Our last day, we were in between museums. We've been to the British Museum. We're getting ready to head to the train station to go to the Victoria and Albert Museum and just stopped at a pub. It looked interesting. It had a local beer. In fact, that was the other one of the things that surprised me a little bit. Is It, it took me too long, I think, after having spent a good amount of time in pubs, to realize that often as not, if you ordered a pint and you ordered one of the local beers, one of the cask-drawn beers in particular that that pint was going to get served to you in a glass, you know, that was labeled with the beer that you picked. This just tells you how far away I am from being anything other than a truly amateur bartender. Maybe it's it's the way it works in the United States, too. I doubt it. I think most of the time, if you get a branded pint glass from America, from a restaurant you're in, it's more likely to be branded with the restaurant. These were truly branded with the beer. So you get a cask-drawn situation where you never know. You may have just the one cask. And more than one occasion, I would order what I thought was an interesting beer only to find out that they were out, that the cask had run dry. And one of the glasses that I made sure I got back with me, in addition to buying a couple at the Brewdog Pub, was Otter Ale. Otter Ale from um, somewhere around Hereford. And the glass was incredibly cute because it, on the front, it just had a an otter. Meaning that if you poured... Like a twelve, twelve to fourteen ounces into this particular pint glass, it would look like the otter had its hands on the surface of the beer or cider or whatever you poured into it, and was looking up over the uh, quote-unquote water line. So, and and so we um we saw another local Hereford beer in this bar not far from the British Museum, and ordered a pint, and sure enough, pint delivered in the glass that was the particular brand that I'd ordered, is that that is so interesting that if you order a full pint, the the bar is equipped with the glassware to match the cask. So I'm there, we're, we're enjoying that, and kind of resting after a, spending a big chunk of time on as much of the British Museum as we could take in in a couple, three hours. And a local person overheard us talking and said, hey, rather than just going straight back to the train station that you came in on, take a quick walk over to the covent garden area of london you'll love it why well, had no idea what to expect and just realizing that we were a little bit shaky in terms of location and direction just kind of walked us over there uh, on her way back to her home we got a quick impromptu tour from somebody who was local and pointing out thing interesting things in the architecture uh, facts and figures in terms of uh, other tourists uh, where does meryl streep stay when she's visits London that sort of thing and that yeah that journey over to Covent Garden is something we would have missed completely and even though I don't think it's going to rank in the top 5 of my favorite parts of the trip it was one of my favorite parts of the journey over into London and I don't know how much of this I put up on Twitter most of the pictures that I shared on Facebook I didn't share through inappropriate conversations but I'm quite sure that if you look back to the early part of April on the Twitter feed there were a few pictures, anyway. Maybe even some video that I shared that way. Certainly pictures. And one of the things that was interesting about Covent Garden was that you got this set of shops. And some of them were shops that I wouldn't spend my time in. It's, you know, either because I just don't have an interest in that particular product line. Um, Doc Martin, for example. Or I'm good. I've got the Apple products I need. I don't, I don't necessarily see a trip to the Apple store as a destination whenever I'm in a major city like that. But there were also a lot of street shops and boutiques. We saw... Someone dressed as Yoda. There was a magician. My favorite part, though, was in this courtyard between a set of shops and restaurants. It was a string quartet on the lower level, simply playing for what I would describe as an after-lunch crowd. It was probably more like 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. And one of the things they played is one of my favorite songs, uh, Zardas. I prefer the version on Marimba by Evelyn Glennie but I do enjoy the song just as well on violin. Maxim Vengerov is the, uh, the performance that I've got on my MP3 player. But in this case, I get to hear it live. We weren't down there watching them, and we, we didn't relocate. But anywhere in this courtyard, whether you were outside the Punch and Judy pub or any of the restaurants, you could still hear the music that was playing. And for some reason, that was particularly meaningful to me. It was, in some ways, a soothing reminder that the concern raised in the song Common People by Pulp was now well and truly behind me. The people that we needed to meet, we had met. We'd gone to almost all the places we intended to go. One more museum left on our list to check off, and, you know, we hadn't... Well, I I hadn't stepped in it, so to speak. You know, when you have multiple years of online communication with a large group of people, I'm quite sure they've got expectations on what you're going to be like. And in some ways, a meetup situation like this can has a greater potential to do harm than to do good. But in my case, I'm pretty sure it did no harm. So if the rule is first do no harm, then mission accomplished. And as far as doing good, I've got memories from this trip that I will be able to, in some ways, mentally see and hear and taste and touch and smell for hopefully... A long, long time. course you come back home after a journey like this with souvenirs uh, jerseys from the soccer store at the stadium tour uh, the otter glass you know other uh you know things that you, we took from the uh, uh, tapestry we took from the shop at sterling castle all those sort of things which you know sort of declare and work your way through customs you know you don't I, me i don't go to scotland not come back with some scotch and i was able to come back successfully travel back with a couple of brewdog beers, which are not readily available to order from overseas, even one of them, a gift to us from our friend, the chef, that was, uh, you know, bottle-aged for a couple of years now, a special Christmas edition of one of my favorite of their particular lines of beer. I'm more of a dark, stout, imperial stout Scotch ale type guy than an IPA type guy. And this is exactly that. Uh, so we were able to leave with some of the trinkets of travel, as you might say. But actually, the thing that I'm going to take home with me from this trip most, and the thing that I, I'm glad that my wife was around to document as many pictures as possible, are the people that we got to meet along the way. It's not that I didn't already have a picture of them in my mind, when you would hear their voices on a podcast or share a exchange uh, in... In typewriting through Twitter or Facebook or what have you. It's just that it was already there, but now for the first time, it's just a touch more real. I have been to England, and I have seen England. But the most important thing about it is I have seen these fellow sinners, as we call ourselves, sinners with a Y, people who've been part of the Simply Syndicated community for a significant amount of time, and who I hope, like me, have taken more from it than could possibly be described in any podcast. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. The show notes appear on www.inappropriateconversations.org. Comments are enabled there. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, you can listen to Inappropriate Conversations on Stitcher.com. And you can interact with me somewhat more directly than that. On Facebook, I have pages for Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. And on Twitter, I am at IC underscore Greg. Thanks for indulging me on this very recent piece of Nostalgia. Rich here, You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word.